Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. My guest today is Yitzi Hammer and Samuel Goldfaden. These are two lawyers based in Israel. Yitzi has been working with tech companies for the past six years on M&A, IP, privacy, and corporate and commercial law-related legal issues. Samuel specializes in AML, compliance, and financial regulation. Both Yitzi and Samuel worked for many years at Herzog, Fox, and Neiman, Israel's largest law firm, including through the 2017 ICO craze. Recognizing the need and opportunity for tailored services in the Web3 space, they launched DLT Law, a unique practice where they work exclusively with crypto and blockchain-related products and services, including NFT creators, DAOs, exchanges, and funds. In addition, they provide strategic consulting to Web3 projects, drawing on their experience in the industry. Samuel Yitzi, welcome to the Law of Code podcast. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you. I thought we'd start with your Genesis block, where you were first introduced to Bitcoin. And I think it might be interesting to hear when you were first introduced to it, as well as your initial thoughts. So Yitzi, could we start with you? Yeah, sure. So in 2011, I was taking a tax seminar in law school, and we were proposed with a few potential subjects that we could write our seminar on. And one of them was Bitcoin. I think that was the first time I'd heard of Bitcoin. Maybe I'd seen it in some of the Financial Times sections in the paper, but hadn't really given it much thought. And here I thought, okay, this is something interesting. Let's let's dig into this a little bit more. And I wrote this whole fantastic tax paper on the future of e-commerce and Bitcoin. And I thought it was a, I thought it was crazy how it was worth about $100 at the time. And if it required less than two steps to actually go ahead and buy a Bitcoin, I, I probably would have bought a bit. Unfortunately, it just seemed way too far-fetched for me. And I looked at it from a purely academic perspective. <laughs> I wish I'd gone, a, I'd gone back in time and, and just bought a couple of Bitcoins. Don't um, we all? <laughs> yeah, that was my first interaction and exposure to Bitcoin. And then obviously much later when I was working at the second firm I was working at in 2016, we started to see some of the ICOs start rolling in and started working with a lot of crypto companies. And that's where things started to really get interesting. Samuel, I thought I'd pass it over to you. Could you explain when you were first introduced to Bitcoin and your thoughts? Sure. So to me, Bitcoin and blockchain is something with, uh, personal matter, I would say. I graduated law school and was certified as a lawyer in 2016. And I had a serious dilemma what to do with my life moving on, because I know that a lawyer's life are not the life that I imagined, but still I have taken this route in my life. And so I was struggling to find a specific area of law in which I 
uh, will be able to practice and really have excitement and, and interest. Um, I wanted to be in it really for, for the passion. And as you can imagine, the legal profession does not provide many opportunities for that. So for a few months, I was just looking around, checking out some options. And all of a sudden, I've heard about uh, cryptocurrency. And uh, the obvious question is, what, how come I did not hear about it before? And that's uh, due to I, the fact that I, I got married in 2013 and I was and still am a in a religious background. So I was focusing on my studies and community and I was not spending too much time uh, on the internet catching up. And then just at the perfect time where I was looking for salvation, the solution came about. And I think it took me about 10 minutes just reading about the blockchain, understanding that there is something here that I should pay attention to. So I, I went down the rabbit hole and pretty quickly decided that this will be my, my legal focus. Now, at the time, there was no such thing as a, a crypto lawyer or any specific designation for that. But nevertheless, I felt uh, as an independent personality, I decided that I can try to make it from scratch. So first thing I, I did was setting up a small website. I don't even remember the domain, but I started learning deeper and deeper into it. And uh, pretty quickly, I heard about uh, early 2017, the crypto started to, to boom. And uh, there was one law firm in Israel that was looking for lawyers in the crypto space. And uh, I came with some experience. It was uh, bad, more than zero. And that was my ticket uh, in, into the space. And the rest uh, is history. I'd love to hear a bit about you both launching DLT Law, focusing exclusively on crypto and blockchain-related clients. Let's talk about DLT Law. Why did you both decide to create this firm, and why specialize exclusively in the blockchain and crypto space? And Yitzi, perhaps I'll pass that to you to start. Yeah, sure. So we left off with Samuel having joined the firm we were both working at, Herzog Fox and Neman, which had been, it's the largest firm in Israel, and it was one of the first to establish a practice that focused exclusively on crypto. And I was actually working in a high-tech department, working on both corporate and commercial side of high-tech clients. And the way things go in the high-tech world, there's all different types of, I'd say, different type of tech that come every, tech trends that come every now and then. So you have femtech and you have ad tech and agrotech and green tech and black tech and white tech. And one of the trends that started trending in 2016 and then again in 2017 and 2018 and 2019, and it just wasn't going away, was crypto. And I'd work closely with crypto clients on things and those and various commercial work and we work closely with the crypto department where Samuel was working and he would advise on all the, the regulatory side of things and we both kind of became obsessed with this space and when I say obsessed I, I, I'm, I'm saying beyond just the, the legal side of things to really understand the space deeply you need to understand the products the services the the people that are involved in the industry and so we started a practice of literally opening up an account on every exchange, opening up a wallet on every wallet service, buying and trading on every platform available, just to really understand all the products and services out. And that level of obsession brought, took us 
deeper and deeper within in industry and being in this industry and really being tapped into the to the ecosystem we saw that the type of services that our our firms were providing and other firms were providing weren't translating to the to the language of the industry as we saw it. So recognizing that it's a very nuanced industry which requires a, a deeper understanding of the products and services that are being offered, we made the decision that we wanted to start a practice that focused exclusively on the, on these areas and really provided services on a deeper level, on, on a strategic level, as well as a legal and regulatory one. Thank you, Yitzhi. And it, it seems to most people in the crypto community to be an easy decision. We all understand the potential here and the ability to bring clients in, not only exclusively in the crypto space, but those who will be joining the crypto space in the coming years. Samuel, did you find that there were any bases you both needed to cover before setting off and, and starting your own firm in terms of things that you did to make yourselves feel more comfortable taking on this endeavor? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of more significant features of the crypto as, a, as its own industry is really its global reach. And unlike any other industry that I'm familiar with, by providing on-chain or off-chain service, you're by default potentially opening up your services to the entire world. And this has a very important implication legal-wise that you should be considering legal frameworks that you may not even know existed. So when in my initial period in, in, in the big laws, I have learned uh, enormous amounts of legal uh, frameworks that I, I was not familiar with related to the United States, Europe, Asia, and I would say Israel was probably the least on that list. So really, from our perspective as a non-US lawyers, is really it, it really required having a very solid base of, of knowledge and understanding of the, the related legal frameworks in order to be able to advise our clients how to navigate these waters in a safe manner. So I think once we both felt confident enough to, to take this endeavor, we, we, we took the step and did it. And I can imagine as, as part of it, meeting clients and traveling around the world is, is part of the job, probably a fun part. And I know you'd see you had gone to NFT NYC. I'm not sure, Samuel, if you went as well, but wondering if, if you could describe, you'd see what that was like, what you learned coming out of NFT NYC and how you feel about the NFT space moving forward. Yeah, so NFT NYC was incredible for so many reasons. I would say, especially since it was happening in the midst of the first bear market that the NFT industry has really seen, made it all that more interesting. I was very intrigued since being in crypto for quite a while. I've seen a few winters, but many of the people who've come into crypto sort of through the NFT industry haven't yet experienced a winter. And I, I like to use Twitter to try and understand the pulse of crypto because I think you really see a lot of the market sentiments there. People are very expressive and you can go into Twitter on any given day and get an idea of what 
what Bitcoin is trading at at any given moment. So it was really interesting for me to see how these crypto enthusiasts who had who had come into crypto only through mm -hmm. NFTs were going to react to this bear market. And in the days and weeks leading up to NFT NYC, not least because of everything that had happened with Luna and some other crazinesses that were going on within the NFT industry in particular, it, it, it looked like it was going to be a train wreck. People kept making jokes how it's going to be more like a, a job fair rather than a, rather than a festival and all these kind of, all these ape, ape accounts that have been tweeting that they're coming in on a private jet or, or like they're tweeting how they're going to be sleeping on a bench in Central Park. So it was really interesting trying coming in. I really didn't know what to expect, but I could tell you that what I saw in the past week has been incredible. Starting with the blue chip projects, Doodles, Board Ape Yacht Club, Azuki, just to name a few, which, which are generally ones that I'm very bullish on. Having gone to each of their events and meeting members of the community in person and hearing leaders of each of these communities and projects speak, feeling and touching these, these projects has given me a lot of faith in the industry as a whole and these, and these projects in particular. It was incredible to go to a Doodles event and hear the CEO come up and give a presentation similar to a presentation that, uh, that you would expect to be given to a board. But here you have all these NFT holders who are ultimately shareholders of a sort talking about how a 10K PFP collection of colorful poop pictures is going to be a global leading brand. And it was really, really incredible to see and feel that enthusiasm. And, and, and it was interesting to see how these various projects are so different from one another in terms of their color and 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 future. You go to the apes and it was just a big one big party. You go to other ones and it was like a board presentation. Like I said, you go to other ones and it's a tight knit crew of people who are looking to build something together. So each and every project has its own values. But what I could tell you is they're all going in very, very interesting and positive directions. And there were tens of thousands of individuals that came to the many, many events that occurred in New York City over the past week, and they're all passionate about this industry and where it's going. So I would say coming out of NFT NYC, I'm super bullish on the industry, on many, many of the projects that are in it. And something that I've said all along is whether, yes, it's true, there's a lot of rugs in this industry and there's a lot of, as in any burgeoning industry, it has, it takes time for it to mature and but the, but the technology, okay, the blockchain technology, which is one of the most phenomenal things underlying crypto in general, but it, but the, the same technology that's underlying NFTs, I'm super bullish on. And it's strong and it's going great places and it's going to evolve many, many, many times over, but it's not going anywhere. Thank you, Yitzi. And Sam, I'd love to pass it over to you to talk a bit about some legal implications regarding NFTs. And there's been some talk and when it's you mentioned CEOs and you talk about how there's a founding team and groups that are working behind the scenes to make things a reality. How do you think the securities laws around the world should look at NFTs, Samuel? And, and where do you think the, the right answer is here? Right. That's, uh, this question really touches the core of the issues the NFT is facing. And I think it, it, it's important to make the distinction between the U.S. The determination of securities as opposed to many other countries. The U.S. in general, and specifically in, in, with regards to securities laws, prefer 
substance over form, whereas in many, if not most other jurisdictions, the, the form would determine the classification of the asset. So I've listened to the fantastic podcast you had with the, the commissioner, Esther Pierce, and she really nailed it in, in one sentence, saying that it's not the, the asset that makes the, the, the class, but the promise that you make, that you attach to that asset. So when, when we're looking at any, any type of a collectible, any type of asset, the, uh, the U.S. securities frameworks, the Howey test wants to know what's the uh, interpersonal relationship between the parties. So you uh, have created, established uh, uh, an investment contract based on the presentations you made. So that takes certain good faith and abilities, and uh, therefore the, this would be the the, the factors to, to look into. Now in in many other countries, I will take Israel as an example for that. The, the law defines securities in a certain way, and it's mostly about the certain rights attached to it rather than the expectations or promises made in, in this regard. And I, I believe, as, as mentioned, since we are dealing in global perspective and advising in a global perspective to our clients, and the U.S. is a major market for, for these projects, and collections. So we tend to really keep very close limits on the scope of promises made, especially prior to launch, prior to Mint. So we have seen, I think the most successful collections were launched without making any promise at all, any project roadmap. It was just about the art, about the fun, and, and it gotten very successful without those promises. So we're trying to implement the same guidelines for our clients and try to put the emphasis on the on the core art community and and such values rather than on the specific milestones and how the promoters are going to drive its value up post mean you can you have a certain more freedom to to take those actions and make certain representations and promises or given that the, those are not the drive for people to, to, to buy the NFTs off of you, you would still need to be cautious in relation to a resale of those NFTs. And so, you know, the, you can, you can never really go completely off the leash, but that's where we put significant efforts to mitigate the risk, the regulatory risk. Yeah, those are such good points, Samuel, because if you have this system where it's acting exactly like a security, but it has a different name and the value is dependent on the efforts of some party, then securities laws are in place for a reason to protect consumers, to ensure that the markets are fair, remove the chance of fraudulent activity, etc. And these are net positives for investors, for speculators, for people in the NFT community, frankly. Yitzi, do you, coming at it from the IP perspective, where do you see NFTs going in the future? You could touch on securities law, but I'd love to hear your thoughts as well from an IP perspective, copyright, and, and what NFTs of the future look like if they are different from those today. That's a, that's a great question. I'll tell you, I think one of the most interesting things about NFTs 
is the ability to get creative with IP. And I'll explain what I mean. So I think Yuga is the best example to look at because they're the one that they're, they're the first project to really take a step in that direction in the sense that they, op they opened up the ability to be creative with, with their IP to their holders. So typically the artist comes and the artist says, all right, I'm the IP owner and I'll give a certain limited to whoever buys my art. Okay. You could hang it on the wall. You could you know, sell it at an auction or give it to a friend as a gift, but it kind of stops there. Obviously you can't take your Picasso and make t-shirts out of it or whatnot. But what Yuga did is they took 10,000 pictures of apes and they said, guys, take these and let's see where you want to run with them. Okay. I'm not, I'm not discussing right now whether or not their terms were drafted in the smartest way possible, because now everybody's reopening their terms and starting to poke holes in them. And since half the other projects just copy pasted what Yuga did, they're also asking themselves, oh man, did I, did I copy paste the right terms? But you know, that always happens when, when things are scrutinized at a later date. And I don't think anybody had the foresight that Yuga was going to go where it did, but the, the, just the basic first step that they took in saying, take the IP, get creative, take commercial rights, do something with this. I think it's taken, it's taken IP into very, very interesting places. And it's raised a lot of questions going on, going along the way, because there's the question of what rights do I actually have as a holder? Okay. I would say that, that the fact that Yuga even took the initiative to write terms and to give clear terms is not a given with many of the blue chip projects. And I'd, I'd say 90% of the other projects out there don't even bother to tell you what rights you have. And even if they did many times. They don't even have the ability to give you those rights, be it because they ripped the art off some, some artist on Fiverr and they didn't bother to actually get those rights from the artists themselves, or be it because they just copy pasted another collection and made them looking right or made them looking left, or because they decide to remint your own art in a statement, you can't copy an NFT. There's a lot of really, really interesting questions that are coming up within this space as, and as an IP lawyer, I'm just loving it. There's some of the some of the answers are we don't know yet okay and i invite litigation and the same way that samuel will tell you that he invites regulation because people need to have borders people need to have guidelines nobody wants to operate within a vacuum i mean it's fun a little bit until somebody gets sued so somebody will get sued and ultimately courts will make certain determinations that will allow us to have more clarity within this space but until they do it's going to be a really really interesting place to operate in it will be, and, and we're starting to see some lawsuits trickle in, and one of those is the Yuga Labs and Ryder Rips lawsuit. Yitzi, do you want to give people who might not be familiar a bit of background on, on this case and, and why it's important and what it might mean for IP rights associated with NFTs going forward? Yeah, so Ryder Rips initially reminted one of the punks about a year ago, I think, and tried to sell it, making a statement that you can't copy an NFT. So there's a, there's a, there's a certain best practice of the U.S. Copyright Office that determines that a, a piece of art that's generated solely by a computer is not able to be protected by copyright. So ultimately what Ryder was trying to do was to play off of that practice and to say that this punk can be reminted and you 
you cannot copy an NFT in the sense that there are no copyrights to the NFT and I can copy it because it was generated by a computer. Now, at the time, the punks were owned by, they were not yet owned by Yuga Labs. They were not yet owned by, owned by Yuga Labs. And the owner issued a DMCA takedown request, which was contested by Ryder and Ryder won. So for some time, he saw himself as like a champion of copyright. And several months later, he decided to start reminting Bored Apes. Anybody can go on to his website, request that he quote unquote ream any one of the any one of the Bored Apes, and then he would literally remint it under a new contract. And he claimed because because this was being done under a a new base URI, which is a uniform resource identifier. So the string of code that was attached to this NFT was different than the string of code that was attached to the initial Yugo Labs NFT, and therefore there was no copyright infringement here. And he did this in a very loud manner, constantly calling on Yuga Labs or somebody else to sue him. He even went so far as to tweet, there is zero chance that Yuga Labs will ever sue me. In addition to this copyright experiment that he was doing, he also started a whole campaign claiming that Yuga Labs was secretly the Nazi whistle anti-everything campaign. And I imagine that it's that aspect which caused Yuga Labs to say, okay, we can't sit silently anymore. And on Saturday, they filed a complaint against Ryder Rips and one of the artists who worked with him and several other John Doe's. Now, what's interesting about this complaint is I cited that Ryder Rip's whole experiment is around copyright infringement and the entire board uh, Yuga Labs complaint doesn't recognize the issue of copyright infringement anywhere in the complaint. The entire complaint is focused on trademark violation in that Ryder Rips used the Board Ape Yacht Club logo and other trademarks such as Ape and Board Apes that are that that are that belong to Yuga Labs. And that's the focus of, of the complaint, in addition to the fact to un unjust enrichment and the fact that he was specifically targeting their campaign and their reputation and benefiting off of it. I believe he claims that he made $5 million off of reminting Port Apes. So this, this complaint, which sits at the crux of the question of whether or not you can copy an NFT and whether this issue of copyright infringement, which remains uncontested because ultimately Yuga Labs chose to sort of glaze over it, probably because it's it's still such a unclear issue, is going to be one of the one of the interesting ones that I mentioned earlier, where we're going to see Yuga Labs is pushing for a jury trial. I think if it gets there, and I I assume that even though it's not mentioned in the complaint. Ryder will want to pull out the copyright infringement aspect as well to sort of get a, a stamp of approval for being able to maybe continue infringing in the future. So there are going to be a lot of really interesting questions that are raised within the framework of, the, of this lawsuit. And whatever comes out on the other end is going to help us act more clearly in the future. Thank you. And I think it's so important to recognize that because this is on a blockchain, there will be damages that will be sought and, and the ability to implement those damages really depends on a lot of factors often outside the court's control, uh, maybe even occurring in jurisdictions across the world. And I'd love to, to talk to you, Samuel, I'll direct this one to you and then Yitzi, you can jump in afterwards about how you think about the rulings from the states or countries from around the world and how they affect your legal practice being in Israel and not necessarily being beholden to the same rulings necessarily 
but judges may find the arguments from other courts persuasive. How do you think about and how do you keep on keep tabs on rulings in jurisdictions across the world relating to crypto and blockchain? I'll address uh, the the regulatory side and the ET will take on the, the others. So the legal world tends to uh, to some extent copy from other jurisdictions so and draw inspiration we often review some leaflets and and research published by different governing bodies worldwide and the one thing they keep doing is keep referencing to foreign law mostly in the major western countries and this affects uh, very strongly the legal reality uh, in other jurisdictions. Uh, and uh, this is especially uh, true in the case of crypto because we are going in these uh, very uncharted waters. And any judge facing a crypto-related case would likely have zero precedence in his, uh, locally to, to, to be based on. So he must go and check foreign laws and foreign precedents. And uh, we do we do see that quite often. It is uh, still a fact that not many court cases have taken place yet in the crypto space. I would say at least uh, outside the U.S. There, there are there are some, and this is this is growing. But it's it's uh, usually around the more let's say traditional questions. Uh, but uh, when really when facing the, uh, the the blockchain aspect. And the ownership, the the, the foundation is really uh, any existing pre- president. And so we can say that the, the, the book is being written at the moment. And it's not just on the ruling side, but also we, we see this trend more and more increasing that it, it is becoming an, an international police or international policies that are made because, and again, because of the global nature of crypto, it is very hard to cope with different regulations in in each of those jurisdictions. That's why we are seeing some sort of a a uniform direction in in this regard. Yitzi, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I'd I'd echo very much what Samuel said. I think that both the courts and the regulators tend to mimic what's going on in other jurisdictions, especially in such a bargaining industry where everybody's kind of just waiting for something to happen. I think a, a good example to look at would be, I come from the world of privacy. So the GDPR, which initially came out of the EU in 2018, has slowly been virtually copy-pasted in various jurisdictions worldwide and setting a global standard and then waiting for everybody else to stand in line or take it one step further seems to be a model that works. So like I said, regulation generally is a good thing, okay? Currently, we're kind of like operating in a vacuum. Everybody's always checking to the left and to the right to see if one of the regulators or one of the courts decide to prosecute somebody or decided to issue some new kind of guideline. And everybody's just kind of unsure of themselves. So people like rules, people like guidelines. It helps us to conduct ourselves in a more calculated manner. So I think everybody's just kind of waiting for somebody to (laughs) drop the ball and then they'll fall in line, be it in Israel first or in the US or in Europe or Australia or the UK or wherever. This is, this. I would say the same goes for banks. We work with a lot of NFT projects 
So banking has been a real pain point for them. It took time in crypto for banks to fall in line and to kind of come up with the most appropriate AML guidelines that they feel comfortable working with so that you could convert your crypto into fiat and live off of it. And NFTs is a whole new world. And yeah, many claim, yeah, NFTs is just a form of money laundering. It's not. It can be used for money laundering as in many other things. And for that very reason, banks don't as of yet know how to deal with it. But banks are looking at one another and saying, who's going to go first, right? Who's going to figure out the best way for us to be able to do this? And it's just a matter of time. So we're always looking, trying to speak to everybody. It's one of the reasons we go to these global conferences. I'd say one of the most important things that we do is we stay in very close touch with other Web3 lawyers from around the world. One of the greatest highlights of NFT NYC I didn't mention earlier is there's a fantastic Discord called blockchain barristers, which is a group of Web3 lawyers from all over the world. We ask each other questions and we consult with one another on various issues, be it jurisdiction focused or just generally general best pack practices. We had a great meetup of over 40 lawyers from all around the world in, in New York last week. And using, utilizing these platforms and, and rising with lawyers from other jurisdictions keeps us on our toes, enable us to give our clients really the, the best advice possible. And we don't do this on a whim. We really try and check ourselves and make sure that what we're doing, because very often there, there isn't any precedent, makes sense because somebody, because we toyed with the idea with somebody else and they also felt the same way. And I think that helps us to be the best learners that we could be within this space. Thank you. Thank you both. And the, the time flew by, but it was really a pleasure pleasure to speak with you. Thank you both so much for joining me. For those who are interested in, in reaching out to DLT Law, how could they get in touch with you? So I'm super active on Twitter. I, I tweet a lot about the legal side of things. So just you could DM me at, at IJ Hammer. And then through my page, you could see DLT's page and you could DM DLT on Twitter as well, or reach out to me on LinkedIn, email at that, that's generally the way to go. Perfect. Perfect. Well, well, thank you, Samuel. And thank you, Yitzi, so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And we'll definitely be keeping in touch in the future. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoying having this being on this platform. It's a, it's a great honor. Mm-hmm.